Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast and I am extremely excited today for many reasons i absolutely love movies i love tv series um and which is interesting because i don't actually own a television but that's a whole nother story <laughs> and i am in particular a huge fan of black sport the black exploitation era and the dimension of films it inspired and so what better way to have a conversation about this era and about black women in film in general than to have Mia Mask, professor at Vassar College, um, on the podcast. Thank you for joining me, Mia. Thank you, Leanne, for having me. It's great to be here. So for those of you who don't know, the BFI is actually celebrating Black women in film and more specifically the Black exploitation era by celebrating Pam Greer and Jackie Brown and Foxy Brown and all of the other movies that she's done. Um, by having a series of screenings over the next few weeks. Dope Black Women will be hosting a screening on September the 24th. So if you are in London and want to come down to South Bank BFI, please do. Um, and yeah, so we're here to talk to Mia about this era, but then more broadly, Black women in film and the representation of Black women in film. And so Mia, welcome. Thank you for joining me. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to our dope black woman audience and tell us what makes you a dope black woman. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here. Well, I, uh, I would like to think of myself as a dope black woman. I don't know that I am. I guess we should really ask my students, right? <laughs> but um, I guess I think of myself as a dope black woman because I love teaching and I love working with students and young people in general because I feel inspired by them and excited by the possibilities that they're going to bring forth and by exposing them to material, whether it's popular culture or um, you know, some element of history that is going to inform and change the way they think, I just am excited and inspired by that. So that's sort of what you know drives me and motivates me and makes me feel really good about doing this kind of work. Um, so I've been teaching at Vassar uh, for a long time now, over 15 years, and I uh -oh. teach 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, a, a range of courses, in addition to sort of like our introductory service courses, sort of intro to world cinema. I teach an African American cinema course. I teach a course on documentary history and theory. I teach a seminar on the horror genre. I actually also do a, a survey of African national cinemas. Um, and yeah, so a range of courses. And I'm looking to introduce a black television course soon. Oh, that's amazing. Wow, that's really interesting. I would love to sit in on your class that I would likely cover the Cosby show. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to have you zoom in. <laughs> Um, well, how did you get involved in film or studying film, feminist theory, um, and then ending up becoming a professor? Like, tell us about what drives you to teach about film in particular. Well, Leanne, the way you phrased the question was actually brilliant and leads to my answer because I got into I got interested in film because as an undergraduate at Tufts University, I was taking courses in sociology, actually, and I was a sociology major as an undergraduate. And I found that I was studying not only so classical sociological theory, Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Simmel, right, but also contemporary sociological theory and feminist theory. And it was in my feminist theory courses that I began to think about and learn about representation of women in media and popular culture. That combined with courses that I was taking in the English department on the films of Hitchcock, for example, really led me to, to think about African-American and just Black diasporic representation in cinema, not only American cinema, but world cinema. And that sort of led me to think about, well, what could I do in these areas? I, people often say to me, don't you want to make films? And it's, and no, I have never really wanted to be a filmmaker. In fact, if I had wanted to, to make films, I would be making movies, right? I always wanted to be a film critic, film historian, and help people to think about what they see in the movies and to process popular culture because I think we consume a lot but we don't process it in terms of large right in terms of larger structural forces and and issues so that really excited me and so I decided to go to graduate school to NYU to do cinema studies as opposed to film production and the sort of the rest is sort of history then I finished my work you know had to finish my PhD write my dissertation and my my work on women film stars really was an evolution of my graduate study work into my dissertation interesting that's it's it's actually really interesting because i feel the same way about my love for arts and creative in general i mean as much as i try to be creative in the work that i do i never wanted to be a an artist or a singer or a, a filmmaker but i love consuming and processing and thinking through and analyzing pieces or you know texts that i've read and so on so it, it makes that makes a lot of sense to me and i think about oh go ahead yeah, I was going to say, and it's actually really important work. You know, a mentor of mine, Ed Guerrero, once said, you know, we help create audiences for these films that might not otherwise know about them. We help, you know, bring films back that might get lost. You know, I've just finished a new book on Black Westerns, and I, you know, found 
documentaries uh, that, had, that no one had really looked at in years. And so we resurrect films and bring them back and create audiences for them by helping to educate people about what's out there, what's available, and how they can think about that material. Um, the the impact of your work and how that influences the things that you're writing about is, you know, there's a, there's a, a call and response type of interaction there. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to describe it. I agree with you completely. <laughs> so in terms of your work around black women in film and the black exploitation era in particular, I think many women or many people in the UK generally probably haven't been as exposed to that era of film um, and there are so many movies, right? There's Dolomite, there's Cleopatra, Jones, there's Shaft, there's I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, which is actually one of my favorites. And then, of course, there's Jackie Brown. Yes. <laughs> um, and as BFI is celebrating and we're talking about Pam Greer and her history, and, you know, I think about um, what a critical role Pam Greer would have played for explodes or exploding this idea of black women as like action heroes and yeah. black women as strong black figures within um within film and so talk a little bit about that era for those of our audience who don't know and pam Greer more specifically and the role that she played in that in that era yeah, no, I appreciate the question so much. And it's two parts. I want to start by saying, you know, many years ago, there was a commercial jingle, um, you know, for, for a soft drink. I think it was Coca-Cola. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And it reminds me of what, like what I do. I'd love to teach the world a film class on African-American cinema. Because when we when we use the term black exploitation, I, I worry sometimes that too much gets swept up in that term. And I, and I like to parse out a little bit more carefully which films I classify as black exploitation and which films are sort of orbiting around that, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually don't, I, I would separate out Shaft and Sweet Sweetback, as do some of my other colleagues. Shaft and Sweet Sweetback, separate them out from what we call usually call black exploitation cinema. They're definitely part of black action cinema, but I feel like Shaft and Sweet Sweetback were the films that were the harbingers of, were the precursors to mm. the black exploitation movement that came in their wake. Right. So, you know, and my and my colleagues, um, Gerald Butters and Novotny Lawrence talk about this in their book on black exploitation as well as as does Ed Guerrero before them, that in some ways Shaft and Sweet Sweetbag showed the studios what was possible. But once uh, they would acknowledge and start producing product for an African-American urban audience. And then all of the films that you mentioned, Leanne, kind of come afterwards. There's like, oh, wow, there's an African-American audience. We can tap into that. Let's make these films. And so what followed was a, a whole a spate of quickly and inexpensively made product to appeal to that audience. And there was sort of uneven and unequal quality. But the, what, the, there were a lot of good things that came out of that movement, like an 
access to opportunity for mm -hmm. uh, actors and craftspeople who heretofore could not get into the union, the Hollywood industry unions as craftspeople, as crew members for, for, you know, for reasons just having to do with institutional racism, right? They couldn't get jobs in the film industry. They couldn't get cast. As we know, you know, even into the 60s, African-Americans were still playing servant roles that would, what Donald Bogle has, has termed uh, for Jennifer, several generations now, Tom's, Coons, Mammies, Mulattoes, and Bucks. So we were not in front of or behind the camera, and black exploitation really helped that. Now, obviously, I'm omitting some of the you know uh, examples of um, art house cinema, Michael Romer's Nothing But a Man, and some of the precursors. But for the most part, uh, black folks were locked out and were not. Uh, given equal access to opportunity and black exploitation of the black action films opened that up and so what what emerges is that all of a sudden after shaft and sweetback the studios recognize wow there may be an opportunity to cast women in you know some kind of action role and luckily you know folks like pam greer and tamara dobson and the cleopatra jones movies uh carol speed and you know a number of other actresses came along and auditioned for these parts and filled that that role so i would say to your question about you know these you know black exploitation cinema right and to a uk audience familiarizing themselves with it you know, we want to sort of look at each film a little bit carefully, its release year and its production history to try to understand where in this movement it should be placed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. I remember watching an interview with Shaka King, the director, who's also a Vassar alum, actually. Who was one of uh, my students. Oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, who is the director of Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. And I remember him saying, you know, he was talking about the relevance of films that center around race and racism and institutionalized racism and just um, you know, some of these black black exploitation films, um, although they were made, you know, a couple of decades ago now, still bear real significance. And, you know, one of the things that he said is that he can't imagine a world where these topics and these issues aren't relevant. And so how do you think the kind of themes and uh, topics that are covered in these movies translate to current day and invite kind of the audience to relate to them in in present day situations yes well shock is absolutely right if you ever interview him again ask him about taking classes with me um <laughs> no he's a brilliant filmmaker so proud of him and his work uh not only judas and the black messiah but also let's give a shout out to his newlyweeds his first feature yes. but that said um I want to say that, yes, Shaka's absolutely right. When we mention, when we talk about the fact that um, what one of the things that, or one of the sets of issues that these Black action films and then Black exploitation in general brought to the forefront was what was happening in the inner cities. You know, life for Black people and for poor Black communities in the in the inner city, the way in which these communities were undermined by the drug trade, by white organized crime. Now, in in, in point of fact, this there's not it's not as though that was completely new 
to um, popular culture or as if it didn't get references in other places. It did. Um, but it was so important in the way the black exploitation brought it up and black uh, action cinema framed it because they framed it as look at the way in which um, these poor black communities are being um, exploited by the drug trade, exploited by pushers and 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 pimps, and um, the way in which these communities are being underdeveloped economically. And so it, they brought that to the audience's attention. They also brought police brutality and 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 um, the police state and the carceral state and um, mass you know the beginnings of mass incarceration to a popular culture and to uh, unequal, unfair policing, right, in general to popular culture and the and the, uh, the, the kinds of exchanges and um, experiences that Black men and now Black men and women uh, have had with the criminal justice system. And so it, it brought all of that to the forefront in a way that it had not been part of popular culture before. Uh, last thing I'll say um, in response to that question is that you also began to see Black action heroes and sheroes uh, pushing back and uh, challenging the man, right? The system, yeah. the status quo, um, uh, the carceral state. So you, so in Shaft and Sweetback, you and Coffee and Foxy Brown, you have these figures who, who fight the system. And that is a part of what Shaka is talking about. That was a sea change at that moment. It's interesting as you're talking and, and kind of guiding us through the topics that would have been covered during these films, I'm seeing so much relevance to what's happening in the UK film industry now as well. And, you know, the film industry here is a much younger industry. Um, I mean, in the UK, there are very relatively few black uh, actors and many of them are getting roles in the US now. I think in the UK, there are only six black women directors that have had a feature film. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering what lessons we can, the UK, in terms of advancing, uh, not just black women in film, but black people in film in general and behind the camera as well. Uh, yes. You know, what were the, what were the strategic points in history across the US that can be replicated or are important for us to be cognizant of in advancing or developing the, the UK black in film industry here? Brilliant question. You know, one of the things that, that the UK can learn, the UK film community can learn from the US is to go back to the, the LA rebellion school of filmmakers who were uh, engaged in challenging black exploitation aesthetics, right? They were concerned. This is a group of independent filmmakers, including Julie Dash and Hallie Jerima and Charles Burnett and Zainabu Irene Davis, among others, who were saying, you know what? We don't want to make these kind of action films. We want to make realist films, more contemplative films, films informed by art cinema. We don't want to make action cinema, we, we, but we don't only want to make art films. We want to make realist 
art films. And so it's it would be useful and strategic, you know, to sort of to also have a moment with, to celebrate the LA Rebellion School, which was a, a group of, of young people out uh, in California in film school who sort of created a community in which they supported one another and, and developed an aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that's one thing. Um, another thing that, uh, you know, can be done is to sort of look at um, what kinds of films are going to be made. Like the U.S. is still struggling as well in terms of representation. So there's a great report online that your listeners can look up because it's free. It's, you know, anybody can Google it. Uh, it's out of the Annenberg School of Communication and it's titled Inequality in 1300 Popular Films, Examining Portrayals of Gender, Race, Ethnicity, LGBTQ and disability from 2007 to 2019. Mm. And it's a September 2020 report. And they look at uh, inclusion both in front of and behind the camera. And what they what their report shows is that there's still underrepresentation, even in the American film industry, okay. of uh, older women, of people of color, of women, especially women of color, of directors of color, particularly of certain kinds of product, right? And so um, that's useful and educative to kind of look at. So that's another thing audiences in the UK and filmmakers in the UK can look at, like, you know, what kinds of industry surveys are being done? And then finally, training ground. What kind of training ground and access to opportunity is the UK film industry providing for, for young artists who are aspiring? Are there opportunities to work in television, to apprentice in television as an avenue to a career in TV or in film? So those are three things that I would sort of, I would suggest at the outset. It's interesting that you brought up the point about representation still being an issue in in the U.S. And I don't know if my the stats are uh, if the stats that I have are exact, but there seems to be one of the stats that I read recently was that one in five of black leading ladies from the past decade, only one in five have a darker skin tone. Mm. Um, as you said, those those stories are missing, right? Those stories of Black women who are voluptuous, those, you know, full figured women, black disabled women, um, where are the softer characters, you the know, brown not skin women, right? Exactly. I don't, I don't think that, that people necessarily put on that lens or need to put on that lens. But I think most conscious, attentive, sensitive artists are going to be aware of mm -hmm. um, what you know the, the story, the kind of story that they want to tell, and how that story is going to resonate with uh, audiences. And so, uh, I mean, once a filmmaker has a certain kind of platform, then I think you know they they, they more that more responsibility mm -hmm. falls them. But I want to leave open for all artists the the uh, creative license and the freedom to create. And I think that out of that will come people telling the kinds of stories that have not yet been told. I mean, they're going to be artists of color you say, are going to write stories that are familiar to them. They're going to write what you know, who you know, mm -hmm. from uh, experiences that you know. And so out of the that will naturally come, I think, the kinds of stories that many stories that have not been told. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, that many filmmakers 
do feel, um, you know, once they have gained a certain kind of access, they do feel a desire to uh, want to show the people, the stories, the lives that haven't been told, right? Because who wants to keep telling the same, you know, or seeing the same movies? I'm I'm less motivated to go to the multiplex, particularly in this age of, you know, COVID and whatnot. Um, if, if it's not a story that's particularly new or interesting. So um, I think, you know, people, artists are going to be inclined to do that. And so I want to say that, sure, there is a responsibility that artists should have to, um, to social issues, but that doesn't, that, that can coexist with uh, a creative license. Yeah. Amazing. And in terms of the film industry in general, just piggybacking off of this idea of the importance of representation in front of and behind uh, the camera and the, the types of stories that are being told. Are we seeing more black women in film? What has the growth been, I guess, particularly in the US industry around black women in film? What do we see changing in a positive way and what is still, where are the gaps? Yeah, great question. Well, it's it's all relative, right? It's sort of like, but compared to what, right? To evoke Juanima Lubiano. But I, so I think that we certainly see more Black women working in film than we saw in Pam Greer's day, right? Um, or Dorothy Dandridge's day, right? I mean, even if we if we just quickly off the top of our head come up with a list of women who are starring in films and and now have enough sort of industry credibility and cachet to work repeatedly we could think of Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer, Taraji Henson, Lapita Nyong'o, Tanda Newton, Kerry Washington, Regina King, Halle Berry, Angela Bassett, Alfred Wright. There are there are a whole range of women. Um, so there are more are they getting equal access? Are they getting the same kind as white women? Are they getting the same kind of access to opportunity as their white female peers? No, right? So some things have changed, but some things have stayed the same. So we always have to be very specific about what that question is and what we're talking about and in, in, but compared to what right and in, in, yeah. in comparison to what so they're still not getting the same kinds of opportunities same quality of scripts older women of all races still fare poorly in terms of representation on television and in film and uh you know once a woman is sort of like 40 she's you know she stopped getting certain kinds of calls and access to uh, opportunities so that's why you see more people wanting to produce and create their own content or work outside of you know conventional channels um and uh, we are luckily seeing stories like Hidden Figures, for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, it's lovely, it's been lovely to see television shows like Queen Sugar, right? Yeah, uh, yeah which is, you know, I, I just I, I ate that up. Um, but it would be uh, great if there was more of that kind of content. Agreed. I mean, we've talked and named quite a few female actresses or women actresses and directors throughout this conversation. And just for the sake of getting to know a little bit more about your personal tastes, um, we're going to do just a, a very quick file. Um, uh, what is your favorite film with a black female lead all time? 
Oh my goodness. That's too hard. Well, right now, I mean, what, you know, I just have Jackie Brown on the brain. So I'm going to have to say Jackie Brown, but, but no, I mean, I don't really even know that I have a favorite. People always ask me this question, particularly, especially because I'm a film professor yeah. and it's a little bit like saying, who's your favorite relative. And the reason that's hard for me is, you know, you have a different relationship to each one. And sometimes you're in the mood to talk to aunt Edith. And sometimes you're in the mood to talk to cousin Susan, you know, and sometimes, you know, so it really depends on, on the mood and who, whose advice I need. Right. So I don't necessarily have a single solitary favorite. I have a lot of people that whose work I, I love and, and respect, uh, you know, a big fan of Ava DuVernay's work. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I like, um, Darnell Martin's work. I'm a fan of, um, Oh goodness, there's so many. Let's see. Um, I like Sana Hamri's work. I like. Um, uh, oh gosh. Uh, well, what do you love about Jackie Brown? Since we're talking about Pam Grier and this era, and you know the BFI is, is screening these films. Um, well, I like the Jackie Brown is an homage to Pam Greer and is a film that cultivates nostalgia, a nostalgia for the work she did in the 70s. And I, while I had not really been a huge fan of Tarantino, he really redeemed himself in many ways for me with Jackie Brown, meaning I, I you know, I have so many colleagues in film studies who just froth over, over Tarantino and I hadn't really you know been completely sold but I thought that he did a really fine job of picking out those elements of her 70s persona and and creating you know molding rum punch around her persona in such a way as to elegantly uh, create this homage to the best of her 70s work Mm. Uh, it's such that people could now retroactively go back to her 70s work and see it as brilliant in a way that they might not have been able to see it were it not for Jackie Brown and that is really genius I mean that is really a you know a a genius move on his part Mm. Um, not saying you know he's a genius but that was sort of a genius move on his part to to be able to utilize rum punch in that way to to select and to um create a film that highlights some of the best of her early work such that people can appreciate it with new eyes and actually i guess in that way it's the perfect film for the uk audience to see if it's their first time engaging with this era and with pam greer in particular Absolutely. But I would hope that for the sake of the 14 films we program, that they would try to see as many of these films as they could, simply because there's, you know, it's like you you have a greater payoff at the end. Mm. You know, when you watch Jackie Brown, if you've seen Foxy Brown and Coffee, right, and Shiva Baby, it's like, oh, wow. So that's where he got all of that great material, right? So that's where all of these pieces came from. That's where the the elements of this collage, of this bricolage, of this pastiche, uh, you know, this is from whence they came. And so there's a tremendous, it's like being a fan of any genre and suddenly, you know, and over time being able to recognize the generic self-reflexivity, the internal references, the inside jokes 
that long-term fans mm. can recognize because they know the way a spaghetti western has series has been referring to different or fans of a tv show right we could easily take uh breaking bad right they're all you know that's just been so such the rage over the last you know decade or whatever right so if we look at that and we say you know breaking bad is a show that once you've seen the whole show you understand all these and then you you understand better call Saul in a, in a way that you wouldn't so it's that it, they um they're referential in a way that pays off yeah definitely going back to not going back to but referencing your review of girls trip actually what is your guilty pleasure film? So what is the film that objectively as a film professor, you say, God, this film is not great. It has so many issues. But for some reason, when you're in a funk or, you know, you want to sit in front of the TV with some ice cream and mope or, you know, get a laugh when you've had a bad day, you put on this this film. Hmm. Again, oh my goodness, I'm such a bad interview on this topic because, <laughs> no, right. you know, there are a lot of things that I can go to, you know, to to do that, you know, I mean, you know, I can do that with a with a Pam Greer movie, I can do that with, um, you know, a television show, um, you know, it, it, you know, it depends on the mood I'm in, I can do that with a television show like Peaky Blinders. Mm, interesting. So yeah, what was the most recent <laughs> guilty pleasure show that you've had? Maybe not of all time, but most recently, what was like, let me sit and, and binge through this? Oh, Peaky Blinders. Okay, fair enough. I have not seen Peaky Blinders, actually. It's on my list of things to watch, but I haven't. There's so many different things I haven't gotten through it. Right, right. But there's a lot more. I mean, I'd have to sort of go through my Netflix list and... and um, and my Amazon list. I've enjoyed a lot of shows. Um, so that's just one. But I'd also say, you know, I was watching Greenlee, Greenleaf for a while. That was sort of, sort of show. Did you watch that show? I did. I did. My housemate was obsessed with it during COVID. So Oh yeah. It was great. I was binge watching that, you know, and and then um so that was fantastic. You know, I was binge watching Empire in the early days. Of, of that TV show with Terrence uh, Howard and Taraji B. Henson. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things. I mean, if it's good, I probably watched it, you know? <laughs> so um, it's hard. We'd have, again, we'd have to talk on a case-by-case -case basis. What are some of yours? Why don't we start there? Oh my goodness. Um, See, it's a hard I, question. It's really a hard question. I need to not ask these questions. Um, well, one of my guilty pleasures, I suppose, um, that I put on, I, well, guilty pleasures to me in, invites the idea that it's not good, but actually I've rewatched so, Atlanta so many times, I can't even say and um, I keep telling people to watch it. And actually the last season didn't get that many good reviews, but I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really oh. well done and just very creative. Um, Get Out is one of my fav one, one of my favorite things to rewatch over and over and over again. Oh, I love Get Out as well. I'm writing a, a book chapter for an anthology right now on that. So I, I completely agree with get you know with you about Get Out and I'm a huge Jordan Peele fan. Oh, nice. What did you think about Nope? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I liked Nope. 
I liked it. I, th I thought it was entertaining and it's fun. And, but I'm also, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm biased. I'm a Jordan Peele fan and I've just finished a book on the Western. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That would be interesting. I mean, yeah, on, on Black Westerns in particular. So, uh, you know, Nope was right up my alley and, um, you know, I loved the casting. So I thought, it, I thought it was really fun. I enjoyed Nope. Did you like it? I did. I thought Kiki Palmo is re it was really refreshing to see her in this kind of uh, role, actually. I, I really enjoyed her. I always enjoy Daniel Kaluuya. I think he just yes. always gives us something different and wanting more from his work. It's like, it never feels like enough. You know, I agree a hundred percent. So yeah, that's that's uh, I I enjoyed watching it. Um, it was far more experimental than you know some than Get Out and Us. I thought, but not in a way that left me feeling unsatisfied or dissatisfied. So yes. um, so yeah, always a big fan of Jordan Peele and looking forward to see what he has coming out next. And speaking yeah. of which, uh, tell us what you have coming out next. I mean, you've curated these films with BFI. So tell us a little bit about that. And then tell us a little bit about what's coming up next for Mia Mask over the next couple of years. What can we look out for? Yes, yes. So I am looking forward to being in London, uh, you know, in a couple of days and to talking about these films with the BFI's audiences and uh, to uh, meeting Pam Greer and talking with her about these films, getting her to weigh in on, for example, what it would, uh, what it was like to work with the cast of Jackie Brown, right? To, to work with Robert Forrester and Robert De Niro and Sam Jackson, right? Those wonderful scenes between uh, Ordell and Jackie. Um, I'm sort of interested in, in, in he hearing her riff on that. Um, and then getting audience responses to that. And then I am about to drop a new book, as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, titled Black Rodeo, A History of the African-American Western. And I'm looking at a number of films there and putting Black Westerns into dialogue with uh, other films and with one another. So Great. that book is on Amazon now for pre-order, but will be available in uh, hard copy come January 2023, uh, maybe late January, early February 2023. So that's very exciting. And I've just been doing some, um, oh, I've just curated a short series of Sidney Poitier films for the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. So that will be end of October, this October. And uh, looking forward to that. To Serve With Love is actually one of the films in that series. And they titled, the Jacob Burns titled that Poitier retrospective to Sydney with Love. Oh. So that's coming up in October. And then in, um, in December, I'll be going down to Florida, actually, to talk about the Western at one of the um, uh, museums of Western history and culture. So those are some of the things on the horizon for me in the short term. Amazing, amazing. And for anyone who's interested in folks could could Sure, folks could certainly reach me through my Vassar Film Department webpage. It's, um, you know, up and gives a little bit more background on me. And um, just as periodically, I'll post uh, events or interviews or things that I'm doing there, as well as promotional material for the book. Uh, Alamo, I've been working with Alamo Draft House Cinemas. It's a chain here in the States of art house movie theaters. They've got about 39 theaters nationwide. And um, I did a recorded a pre-show 
before to play before screenings of Nope, uh, pre-show in which I was discussing Black Westerns. So um, that's been out and, and uh, will probably be on my webpage and people are welcome to check it out. Amazing, amazing. Mia, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank uh, you, Leanne, for having me. This has been really fun. No, amazing. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. And for our audience, please come out, meet the dope black woman. We are hosting a screening on the 24th of September. You will be able to see uh, Jackie Brown and you'll be able to come and meet and mingle with other dope black women. And we'll have, uh, you know, drinks in the foyer after the after the film. So if you want to find out more information about that, send us an email info at dopeblackwoman.org or simply go to our social media pages. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.